Father, we thank you for these words of Jesus, words to these 11 disciples then, but just as much words to us today. Uh, Give us open hearts and ears, ready to listen and learn. Amen. I'd like to um, begin this morning by testing your music trivia. Does anyone recognize this lyric? All the things that we've been through, you should understand me like I understand you. Got an advantage if you're over 30, possibly over 40 or 50, although you can see this band in Bedford in a couple of weeks' time, I've learnt. All the things that we've been through, you should understand me like I understand you. Anyone recognise it? Yes, well done. Uh, It's Simply Reds, If You Don't Know Me By Now, released in 1989, well done, Emily. Uh, It is, uh, probably more of you will recognise it from the title, sorry, lots of younger folks still won't. Um, but, but it's kind of, it's a state of the relationship song. Um, the singer is frustrated that his girlfriend doesn't trust him after everything they've been through together. And if you, uh, if you strip it of its romantic context, I kind of feel like it fits this passage, particularly um, verses 8 to 14, which is where we'll zoom in this morning. I mean, th- these could be Jesus's words in verse 9. All the things that we've been through, you should understand me like I understand you. But there's a difference, because if you know the song, you'll know the full chorus. If you don't know me by now, you will never, never know me. Simply read song. It's a hopeless song. But with Jesus, well, we start the same. Verse 9, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? But we end somewhere completely different. Verse 14, you may ask for me. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Though with Jesus we start the same as that simply read song, we end somewhere completely different, filled with hope. But before we work out um, how we get from the the seeming despair, frustration of verse 9 to the confidence of verse 14, um, let's remind ourselves of where we're up to in, um, in this upper room discourse, these chapters of John from 14 through to 16, where Jesus gives his disciples some concentrated teaching before he goes to the cross. Uh, as Andrew's reminded us, Jesus has told his disciples that he is going in chapter 13, verse 33, and it sent shockwaves among them. And then uh, Dan showed us last week that the place Jesus is going is to his death in 13 verses 37 to 38. And then Jesus uses chapter 14 to teach his disciples why he is going, helping them to see how they will cope without him there among them. And last Sunday we saw, as we looked at verses 1 to 7, that Jesus is going so that he can bring the disciples to be with him. It's not sort of some Airbnb host who needs to go in and plump up the cushions because heaven isn't quite ready for us. No, Jesus is going because his going is the only way that the disciples can go, the only way that we can go to heaven. For he is the way to, the truth of, and the source of life from the Father. And then in verses 8 to 14, we see that Jesus is going so that he might continue to make his Father known. That might sound a bit counterintuitive, he's going, 
to better make his father known. We'll get onto that a bit more when we get onto verses 12 to 14. Um, but first, we need to tackle verses 8 to 11. Uh, and our first point from verses 8 to 11 look at Jesus and see God himself. Look at Jesus and see God himself. Um, one of the disciples, Philip, um, isn't very satisfied with, with what Jesus has said so far, and particularly how Jesus answered Thomas's question back in verse 5. And Philip wants more. Verse 8, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Philip wants more. Jesus, let us see the Father. That's all we need. Show us God the Father. And it's a great request. It reminds us, possibly of Moses in Exodus 33, verse 18. Show me your glory. It's God answered, broadly favorably, passing by and letting Moses see his back. But verse 9, Jesus answers, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you, such a long time. There's disappointment, a hint of rebuke in Jesus' answer. Now, I don't think the desire as such is wrong. It's a good, a godly desire to want to see God as much, as best as we can. But I think there are two problems with Philip's question. I think there's a misunderstanding, and I think there's a motivational problem. A misunderstanding and a motivation issue. At first, the misunderstanding. It is a good and a godly desire to want to see God the Father. But the answer has been staring Philip in the face for the past three years. The answer has been staring Philip in the face as he dragged his reluctant brother to meet this new rabbi back in John chapter 1 as he saw five loaves and two fish transformed into a meal that fed thousands in chapter 6, as Philip managed the people wanting a slot in Jesus' diary in chapter 1. The answer has been staring Philip in the face for the past three years. Verse 9, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus says, so how can you say, show us the Father? It's a misunderstanding on Philip's part, a failure to grasp. It's the right question, but it's the wrong era in salvation history to ask it. For Philip has already seen the Father in seeing Jesus. Jesus says, the triune God has revealed himself now, not just in a word, a dream, or a vision, not just through creation, through the natural world, through humanity made in his image, He's revealed himself in a person. He has revealed himself in person. So what is it you're expecting to see, Philip? What is it that you're asking for? Some sort of ecstatic vision, a glimpse behind the clouds, a view of the throne? Good things to desire. But you have something better, Philip. You have God revealed in a person. God revealed in in person, in Jesus. My aunt uh, loves Star Trek. Uh, she likes re-watching the shows, collecting memorabilia, chatting trivia with other fans, going to the conventions. But you know what she really wants to do? She nearly managed it a couple of weeks ago. She wants to meet William Shatner. 
She wants to meet the man himself. He's in his early 90s, apparently, but still touring. She wants to meet the man who brought Star Trek to life back in her teenage years. She wants to meet Star Trek in person, if you'll permit me. And we have something far better than the experience my aunt wants in Jesus. Because, of course, William Shatner is not actually Captain Kirk. Captain Kirk's is a fictional character. William Shatner's just an actor. But Jesus is God. He's God himself. Not just God's representative, sort of a diplomat, an ambassador, a cardboard cutout, a hologram, like this new ABBA concert you can go to see. Jesus goes on in verse 10. Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? To see God the Son is to see, in some sense, God the Father. Jesus says, to look at Jesus, listen to Jesus, interact with Jesus, is in some sense, which is probably beyond our comprehension, to look at, to listen to, to interact with God the Father. For the Son is in the Father, and the Father is in the Son. Isn't that incredible? It's beyond comprehension. And perhaps a little unsettling. It rocks our view of God a little, because we sort of agree with Philip. I mean, he has, he has just seen God the Son, really, surely. I mean, Jesus is great, don't get me wrong, but God the Father, well, he's got on a whole different level, isn't he? I mean, surely Philip hasn't actually seen God the Father in seeing Jesus. It's more like my aunt wanting to see William Shatner, to see Star Trek. But Jesus says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. We may only rightly comprehend it when we're on the other side, in the new creation, in glory. But to see one member of the Trinity, Jesus seems to be saying, is to see the whole Trinity. Isn't that incredible? It's um, deeply inadequate, but the only illustration I can think of that even begins to scrape the surface is it's a bit like when you meet a friend's parents and suddenly you're like, ah, Okay, I, I get you a little bit better now about your friend. You see a bit more why they're like, what they're like. Because you see their parents in them. The father is in the son. And the son is in the father. Feeling the incredulity in the room, no doubt. And Jesus gives Philip and the disciples some assurance about this astonishing claim he's just made. Uh, verse 10 from halfway through. Um, the words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who, does his, who is doing his work. Uh, believe in me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. So Jesus says that his words are the proof that when we look at him, we see the Father. For Jesus' words are the Father's works. When Jesus speaks, the Father works. Well, that doesn't mean that Jesus is some sort of ventriloquist, unthinkingly speaking words that the Father has automatically put into his brain. Nor does it mean that Jesus is really, just, is really good at just guessing what the, what the Father's thinking, what he wants him to say. Now, one commentator says, the Son speaks the mind of the Father, 
because this is also his own mind. So if we want to see that the Son really is in the Father, that seeing Jesus is equal to seeing God the Father, then we must listen to what he says. And we must see whether God works through those words. We must look to Jesus' miracles, turning water into wine, feeding 5,000 with a packed dinner, walking on water, giving sight to the blind, speech to the mute, hearing to the deaf, mobility to the disabled, life to the dead. We must look to his ultimate work, to his death on and resurrection from the cross. And we must look to his words today. Do the words of scripture continue to ring true? And do they continue to change things by God's spirit? Are hearts changed, minds open, lives transformed by the words of Christ? If so, then we can be confident that the Son really is in the Father and that seeing Jesus is seeing the Father. So let me ask this morning, do you see who Jesus is? Do you see the claims he makes about himself, the claims the Bible makes about him? Do you see that he is not just someone who is important, good, someone to be followed even, but that he is God in person? So much bigger, so much greater than we could ever know or understand. And do you believe him as he commands us to do in verse 11? when he says that he is in the Father, and the Father is in him. Philip's first problem was a misunderstanding. I think the second one was motivation. Uh, Andrew's already reminded us that the, the disciples, they were afraid. Philip was nervous. He was scared. They all were. Jesus was going. How would they cope without him? Philip longed for assurance, a bit more God, God a bit clearer, something to, to, grapple, uh, to grasp onto. But Jesus' answer was, realize what you already have, Philip. Realize what you already have. Realize that you have seen me. And if you've seen me, you've seen God the Father. You don't need bigger better, more transcendent experiences to keep spiritual fuel in your tank, Philip. You've seen God the Father. Cling on to that. And maybe we need to hear that too. We're struggling with doubt or just the mundaneness, the ordinariness of Christian life. It feels like this isn't what we signed up for. And we look around us, uh, believers from other traditions and other parts of the world, and we feel like we're missing out. Christian experience just seems to leave a lot to be desired. If only we could just for a moment see the heavens open and look inside, get a great vision of God. Wouldn't faith, wouldn't life just be so much easier? And Jesus says to us, realize what you already have. Realize that if you have seen Jesus in Scripture, if you have read his words, then you have seen God. You have heard God, and you're in a relationship with the God of the universe. So keep looking at Jesus, for in him we see God himself. Let's move on now to verses 12 to 14, and our second point. Look to Jesus, 
and continue his great works. Um, Verses 5 to 7, 5 to 11, was a little bit of a digression, I think, with Jesus responding to the two questions from disciples in in verse 5 and verse 8. But in verses 12 to 14, um, we get back onto onto his major theme. Um, Verse 12, very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. So why is Jesus going? Uh, He's going so he can take his disciples with him, as we saw in verses 1 to 4. And he's going so that he might continue to make the Father known. That sounds rather counterintuitive. Surely, if Jesus reveals the Father, then staying on earth would be the best way to make the Father known. Um, But uh, for all those who believe in him, Jesus says that they will do the works that he has been doing. This is how the Father is going to be better made known. And he doesn't stop there. He goes further. He says that to believe in Christ is to do even greater things than these things that he has been doing. It sounds almost blasphemous, doing greater things than what Jesus has been doing. How can that be the case? A few possible options have been bandied about. Um, Firstly, it's not true. Jesus is getting a bit carried away. He's feeling the nerves, the tension in the room. He's trying to inspire and encourage the disciples. But I don't think that can be right uh, because he's just said that he is the way, the truth, and the life. So I think we need to assume that what he's saying is true. A second option, it refers very specifically to the apostles. Um, This dialogue was to the 11 disciples. Judas had already gone. Um, It's not to us. We're, We're just listening in. Uh, This is a prediction of of Pentecost and the work of the Twelve after Jesus' ascension. Well, yes, I do think it is particularly to the apostles, but I think it does go broader than that. And there are other places in Scripture uh, where where Jesus speaks of what believers in him will do. Uh, A third possible answer, um, greater means more rather than better, kind of quantitative rather than qualitative. Jesus means that that the apostles, that Christians, will do more things, more miracles. There'll be more gospel proclamation because there'll be more of them and the church will spread and there'll be more time, thousands of years. Well, well, again, that's true. I think it does include quantitative, um, but there are other better Greek words that could have been used if it was just numerical increase that was intended. Let's let's dig a little bit more into the verses and see if we can um, see what the answer might be. Let me read verse 12 again. Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. Did you spot the reason there at the end that believers will do greater works? It's because Jesus is going to the Father. He will be on the other side of his death, resurrection, and ascension. I don't think the contrast here is um, Jesus versus believers, what Jesus did versus what believers will do, which will be better, which will be bigger. No, I think it's life pre-Jesus being glorified versus life post-Jesus being glorified. It's God's work in the world prior to Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension compared to God's work in the world after 
Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. Because after Jesus ascends to heaven, Pentecost comes. It is a new era in salvation history, the last days, and everything is different. And Jesus will operate in this created world in an entirely new way and will do even greater things. And amazingly, he will do them now through his people as he will no longer be physically present on earth. He will do and has done even greater things through the last 2,000 years of the church than the things he did while he walked on earth, walking on water, uh, calming storms, feeding thousands. And again, it's incredible. And particularly that he does these even greater things through his people, particularly the apostles, but through us. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that we will do everything that Jesus does. We will never breathe life into dead souls. We will never sustain creation moment by moment. And nor does it mean that we will get to set the agenda and tell Jesus what he must do through us. Notice verse 13, and even these greater things, they'll come about only through prayer, whatever you ask, and they'll only happen in accordance with God's will in my name, and they'll only occur so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So this isn't Christians setting the agenda for Jesus, but it is the most extraordinary promise of what God will do now through the church. And it gives us the most incredible sense of expectancy. Let's be careful not to betray Christ's words by dampening them with too many caveats, too many qualifications, too many things that it doesn't mean. This is the most extraordinary promise. And surely we, like the disciples, should be astonished as we hear these words. Astonished that Christ will do his work through our prayers, just as he did through the prayers of Abraham, of Moses, of Elijah, of Jesus. Verse 14, you may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. We so often think of God as a bit stingy. We have to really convince him, work hard on him to answer our prayers. He's like a parent whose answer is only ever maybe until we pester him enough to give us what we want. But I think he's more like the father, the wealthy father, whose only daughter is getting married. And he's there with the open checkbook, ready to write out a check for whatever she wants for her wedding. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. But what do we do with prayers that we feel are in God's name, in line with his will? but don't seem to be answered as we wish. That's one to chew over more. If you're in a home group and you're meeting this week or with a friend over a meal or a walk or the person sitting next to you now over coffee. But let me just say very briefly that the limiting factor isn't Christ's power. It's not that he's unable to do what you've prayed for him to do. He's sovereign over everything. Nor is the limiting factor our earnestness. Did you really mean it when you prayed for it? Did you pray for long enough? Did you pray enough times? Were your prayers good enough? 
Don't we so often think that if I pray for something enough, if I pray for it every day, if I get enough other people to pray for it too, if I say the right kinds of prayers, God's more likely to do it? No. The limiting factor isn't Christ's power and isn't our earnestness. It is simply, I think, that we are creatures and that we don't know God's will. We just don't know whether what we're praying for is in line with his sovereign will. We know his revealed will, that he wants all people to be saved. But we know his sovereign will, not all will be saved. And we're just creatures. We don't know whether it's God's will to lift this suffering from our or our loved one's shoulders. We don't know whether it's God's will to save our loved ones who haven't yet turned to him. We don't know whether it's God's will to give us the good gifts we ask for from him. Because we're finite, we're small, we're creatures, and he is God. The limiting factor, it's not Christ's power, it's not our earnestness. It's our knowledge of what's in God's will. But he promises that if we ask for anything in his name, and it is in his will, then he will do it. And that is a promise to enjoy, to treasure, and to cherish. So what are we praying for? What are we asking God to do? Are we praying for anything? Have we given up? Because he doesn't seem to have answered this prayer or other prayers in the past. What are we praying for individually? What are we praying for as a church? Because prayer is not just about getting our will in line with God's, getting, getting our, our minds on God's page, although it isn't less than that. But the sovereign God, who knows everything that can and will happen, has chosen to work through the prayers of his people. So we should pray. We should pray for our unbelieving friends, families, neighbours and colleagues to be saved. We should pray for the gospel to reach unreached places, for revival, for the growth of the church. We should pray for fellow believers to be built up and strengthened in the faith. We should pray for rulers and authorities to submit to God's will and for the whole world to know the glory of our God. Let's do that now. Father, we thank you for these assurances you gave to your scared and worried disciples that you no longer being with them physically on earth was not a cause for panic, for you would take them to be with you. And because in seeing you, they had seen God the Father. And because you would continue to make the Father known by answering their prayers, even once, Lord Jesus, you are no longer physically here on earth. Give us greater assurance. Give us greater confidence. Help us not to yearn and long for, for dreams, for visions, for bigger things. Not that you'll never give them to us, but help us to know what you have already shown us in showing us Christ. And help us to hold on to this promise that you work through our prayers that what we ask for in your name, you will do. Amen.